You're listening to the Wellness Insider Network, episode number 42. Welcome to the Wellness Insider Network podcast, a place where you discover how to create a balanced, vibrant, and stress-free life with the right food, herbs, and self-care techniques. I'm your host, Lana Camille. I'm a college professor, drug information pharmacist, and an herbalist. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Let's get the show started. Hi there. How are you doing? I hope you're having a great week. Do you love to travel? I certainly do. But have you noticed that when you're away, you often return home sick? My today's guest explains why that is the case and what you can do to prevent it from happening next time. Her name is Patricia Kritzi Howell. Patricia has more than 20 years of experience as a clinical herbalist and teacher. Her book, Medicinal Plants of the Southern Appalachians, is one of the foremost resources on the topic of regional native plant medicines. A professional member of the American Herbalist Guild since 1997, she has a clinical practice in Clayton, Georgia. Patricia advises the Atlanta Botanical Garden on medicinal herb programming, serves as a member of the Governing Council of the American Herbalist Guild, and is the co-founder of the Georgia Herbalist Guild. She's the co-owner of Wild Creed Travel, a small tour company specializing in unique custom travel experiences on the Greek island of Crete. By the end of this episode, you'll understand how to prepare better for your next adventure with the right natural products and strategies. Enjoy. Patricia, good morning. Okay. How are you doing? Good morning, Lana. Good to talk to you. Likewise. I'm very, very excited to have you to talk to um, this audience. Um, uh, Patricia, I want to ask you a few questions. And the first one that I have for you is, can you tell us a little bit about your journey as an herbalist? How did it all begin? Did you know that you want to become an herbalist? Aha. Uh -huh. um, well, the journey began when I was in my teens, and um, I was a hippie, mm -hmm. and or I thought I was a hippie. Um, I went to a Catholic school, so I had a limited ability to express my hippiness, okay. but I was very um, uh, inspired by sort of the back to the land movement and things like that, okay. and I came across a copy of Jethro Kloss's Back to Eden, and uh, some of your listeners might not know of this book, but in the late 60s, it was one of the only books that was being mass-produced and sold that had information about herbs. Mm -hmm. So um, I got that book, and it talked about different plants um, and what they did. And I was always interested in wildflowers and knew the names of lots of wildflowers. And then the idea that the wildflowers that grew around where I lived, which was in northern Illinois, um, that those actually were medicines well, just was like the most profound insight to me. I just could hardly believe that that was true. So with my limited knowledge, I started collecting plants in the wild, like yarrow, for example, mm -hmm. and uh, making teas. 
And, um, you know, unfortunately, I had for, for my two younger sisters, I experimented on them quite a bit, mm-hmm. um, made things that probably tasted like I was trying to poison them, but okay. they went along with it to some degree. Okay. Um, and it just became something I was really interested in and just dabbled in on the side. Somewhere in my travels, I came along, I came across a recipe for um, an herbal tea for menstrual cramps. Okay. And uh, at that time, it was really hard to get bulk herbs. Um, there was a, uh, a company, and I don't remember their name now. I think it was like something like the herb, the herb or herb shop or something in Indiana okay. where you could mail order herbs. So I would order the herbs to make this tea and it worked really, really well. And I would make a gallon at a time. Mm-hmm. And when I went away to college, I would make it and sell it in the dorm. Wow. I would have this gallon of herb tea in my refrigerator in the dorm. And I, the college I went to, we had little apartments. Okay. Um, and so people would, other girls would come and knock on the door and, you know, I would give them a little bottle of this amazing cramp remedy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it kind of was in that, you know, at that level for a long time. When I went to college, I studied film and television production. Um, and I was interested in sound engineering in particular. I don't know why, but I was. Okay. And um, my, my, when I graduated from college, my emphasis was on um, sound recording and sound reproduction. Okay. Uh, and that was like in, in 1980. So I, I was able to get a job in San Francisco working in my field. And I moved there. I was in college in Washington state and um, worked for a sound company there for a number of years, really hated it. Okay. Um, But just um, always the herb thing was like my hobby, you know, reading about herbs, uh, making things with herbs. And then in, I think it was about 19, it must have been around 1988 or 1989. Um, I, uh, m- my sister had a big health crisis. She was diagnosed with leukemia and um, unfortunately didn't survive. She only so lived sorry. a short time after that. She was just a year younger than me. And it was one of those wake-up moments where you say, uh, because I was 33 at the time, and I just really uh, you know, thought I had forever to do mm-hmm. whatever I wanted to. And when that happened, I sort of thought, wow, am I doing what means the most to me in my life? Uh, and it was uh, a very kind of a crisis for mm-hmm. me, not only the sorrow, but also just what's the point here? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and around that time, I heard that there was going to be a workshop in San Francisco um, being taught by David Hoffman, okay. who um, is a very you know, well-known herbalist in, mm-hmm. in the United States. He's written some fantastic books. So I went and took the weekend with him, and towards the end, he remarked that he was um, getting ready to begin a year-long training program at the California School of Herbal Studies, which mm-hmm. was um, in the Russian River Valley near Sebastopol, California. And I literally, Lana, I just I went home and I um, found someone to sublet my apartment, and mm-hmm. I took all my savings and I moved there and I studied with him. Wow. And that was the turning point for me. Um, just saying, I have to do what my passion is about, not what I think is a good thing to make a living. I, I love this story. I absolutely love this story. And I think somewhere there is 
herbs were really calling you and really, you know, um, you found your calling because you realized that this is something that's really important to you. But I also uh, love the fact that uh, the realization came that it's really important to pursue that passion. Exactly. And I remember some sometime in that whole period of like being very confused about my future, a friend gifted me with a psychic reading. And so I went to have the psychic reading. And the very first thing this woman said, which totally blew my mind, is she said, the world does not need more sound engineers, but it does need more herbalists. Wow. And the fact that she picked up on all that and said that to me, because not many people knew that I was, you know, unhappy and looking for something different. Um, So it was kind of like a validation, like, yes. This is what you do. And I thought about it so many times in the following years, you know, struggling to establish myself as an herbal practitioner. Wow. That, you know, it was bigger than me. Wow. <laughs> how I felt about it. So can you talk a little bit more as to how you establish yourself as herbal practitioners, like what your practice is today like. I know that there are several facets of your practice that you see people that might have immediate problems like acute conditions, but you also see people that um, are interested in um, consultation to look at their uh, entire health history and really to understand how to create a bigger plan. Can you please talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, And that's really kind of an evolution of my practice um, because I realized that, well, first of all, let me just say that I live in a very rural area in North Georgia. So um, I'm in the mountains. Um, The population of my entire county is 16,000 people. Mm -hmm. So it's not a very urban area. Um, So, and that's part of what what has affected the evolution of my practice. Mm -hmm. Um, So I realized that there were people sometimes who wanted to come and see me because they had a cold they couldn't get over, Mm -hmm. or sometimes people wanted to come to see me because they had uh, chronic digestive system problems that had gone on for years, and that those two patterns required a very different approach from me. So... If somebody is coughing and, you know, has a fever, um, they don't necessarily need to sit down and tell me everything about their childhood illnesses, what they eat every day, Mm -hmm. you know, all of that. They want something that's going to help them in the moment, some acute care. Um, And then if somebody comes to me and they have something that's more chronic, that's really affecting the overall quality of their life and maybe has been for years, with those people, we really have to take the long view. You know, we have to look at, like, how did they get there? You know, what were the the things that happened that set this pattern in motion that now they're, they have this particular condition? And what about their lifestyle is uh, either maybe exacerbating those symptoms or, you know, helping them from, helping them be stronger. Mm-hmm. So I like to look at people's you know, what I think of as their constitutional strengths and weaknesses, and that has to do with their, their family ancestry. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I was taught that the, the first seven years of a person's life really can set the imprint for their, their strengths and weaknesses in terms of their health and also their emotional um, 
beings. And that, you know, getting some information about that helps unravel the mystery of why these symptoms are persisting. Um, so I do spend about an hour and a half, sometimes two hours mm-hmm. with people the first time I meet with them, uh, if that's what they want. You know, but I, my office is in, um, I, I use the term downtown very loosely because the, the county seat here has a very small, like three Mm-hmm. three blocks downtown, but that's where I have my office. So people will often, you know, call and say, can I come by? I'm getting ready to go on a trip and I always get a cold when I fly. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you have? Uh, so I do a lot of, you know, first aid kind of health care as well as the in-depth thing. That, that's that's great. Thank you. So since those days in California School of Herbal Studies, um, looking now, you have done quite a bit and you have you have you wear a lot of different hats. So on one hand, you're a practitioner. On another hand, you have a school, you're a teacher. Can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about what you teach and who are typically the students that come uh, to learn from you? Sure. Well, I, I will also just say to just kind of put things in a historical perspective that I began teaching around kitchen tables. Okay. Um, so um, after I was out of herb school, I was um, living on Long Island. I was working at an herb farm there. Mm-hmm. And some people started asking me questions. Like in particular, I remember some women who were suffering a lot from hot flashes. So one of the women that I worked with said that many of her friends were dealing with hot flashes as Mm -hmm. a symptom that they really didn't know what to do about. Mm -hmm. And if she made dinner for me, would I come over to her house and talk to them? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I can remember very clearly just going over there and these like five women were there and they all had notebooks, um, which kind of freaked me out that they were writing down what I was saying. Mm -hmm. Um, And they um, started asking me questions and I started explaining things like how to make a tea and what some of the herbs were and how they could get them and things like that. And they were thrilled. Mm-hmm. Um, and then somebody else asked me, they said, well, what about when kids get cold? What should we do for herbs? Mm-hmm. Can you come over to my house and I'll make you dinner? Mm-hmm. And so this kind of house party thing evolved. So that was really um, when I, where I learned how to teach. Okay. <laughs> literally around kitchen tables. Okay. Um, in along the way after herb school, I met an herbalist in an acupuncturist in Chicago named Althea Northridge Orr. Mm-hmm. And I actually went to her for an appointment and we started talking about herbs. And she said that the way acupuncture is taught, which I didn't know this at the time, but when acupuncturists learn about herbs, um, they never learn about the live plants or the botany of a plant. They just learn like, here's a jar, here's the name mm-hmm. of the plant, here's what it does. And my training, because, or my life experience really, because I was mostly interested in plants, mm-hmm. and that led me to herbalism, I was very focused on plants, mm-hmm. and not so much on the clinical skills. Right. So um, Althea and I sort of looked at each other and said, I wish I knew what you knew, and mm. you know, vice versa. So being entrepreneurial types, we said, I know, let's do some workshops where you teach about the clinical and I teach about the plants and we'll get people to pay us to learn from each other. I love that. So we did like, I think a six weekend program in Chicago and it was, it sold out. 
we had people calling us all the time. And this was, so we're talking now 1991 is oh, when wow. this was. Okay. Um, so then we decided to expand it to eight weekends. And then we expanded it to 10 weekends. Mm-hmm. And along the way, I ended up moving to Atlanta, Georgia. So we started offering it in Atlanta in mm-hmm. 1994. And so I would fly to Chicago and teach one weekend a month, and she would fly to Atlanta one weekend a month to teach. Mm-hmm. Um, after a few years of that, we both got really tired of the traveling. So mm-hmm. we split the business, and I kept my school here in Georgia. Okay. Um, so... I have always done classes or trainings that meet on the weekends. I know there's a lot of programs in the country that do classes like on Wednesdays and Thursdays. Mm -hmm. Because of that, um, you really get a completely different student group because in order to do that, someone has to move to where your school is. And they have to have a type of job that allows them to have two weekdays off. Mm Mm-hmm. I really gear my program for working people. Okay. So I only have classes on Saturdays and Sundays. So I tend to, as a result of that, um, get a lot of older students. Mm-hmm. Um, I know some of the teachers who have classes, who have schools up in Asheville, North Carolina, which is about an hour and a half from me. Most of the students are much younger because they already live in Asheville. Mm-hmm. My students are coming from all over the Southeast. And it's doable for them because they can come here on the weekends and do the training programs. Um, I do two kind of categories of trainings. The first just sort of assumes you know nothing and starts out with the language of herbalism. Um, Lorna Moni Brodak, who's an herbalist and Mm -hmm. former student of the school in Atlanta, does our medicine-making workshops. Mm -hmm. And, And because we're in the Southern Appalachians where there's so much botanical diversity of plants that have medicinal use, we have a big emphasis on field studies. So people who come to my program learn about the clinical uses of an herb like black cohosh, but then they also see it growing in the wild. They see it flower. They have an opportunity to dig it up and make a medicine out of it. Right. So we cover about, we cover 60 plants in the program with an emphasis on plants that are regional. Okay, and that that's kind of what was the foundation uh, for the book that I wrote right. on uh, Appalachian plants of the area. I mean, medicinal plants of the southern Appalachian. Right. So, so can you talk a little bit more about why it's important to know the plants that grow around you? Because very often, like right now, people that are learning about herbal medicine, they look at herbs and so they're learning, oh, black cohort is good for this, or echinacea is good for that, or this Chinese herb is good for something else. And so they start shipping things from maybe China or, um, you know, Western part of the United States and so on and so forth. But something that you have been a very big advocate of is really uh, getting to know plants that grow around you yeah I think that I think that there's a movement in that direction in general in in herbalism in North America and one thing that makes herbalism in North America or I guess I really should say in the United States unique is that by and large most of the herbal community in North America has a really strong awareness of conservation and plant sustainability And in other parts of the world that I've traveled to and talked to herbalists, 
there's a real big disconnect from from that. And I think that's one of the things that is really amazing and wonderful about herbalists in the United States, even though we struggle with a lot of restrictions legally mm-hmm. and we're not, you know, recognized that we all, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm not speaking for everybody, but in my travels and friendships with colleagues and communities, um, there, there is that sense of like, what plants do we have a lot of and how can we use them in as many ways as possible? Mm-hmm. So that, um, that really inspires my work because when I look around here at what's growing, I try to look at the aerial parts of plants um, as a primary source of medicine and then kind of reserve things where you have to dig up the roots and actually kill the plant as something that is used a little more judiciously mm-hmm. um, for more serious conditions. Um, there are lots of plants like bone set, um, like um, uh, goldenrod that um, are abundant really throughout the Northeast, but definitely here in, in large quantities that do a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. And because of what you just referred to earlier, where people sort of pigeonhole plants, like this is the plant for that, this is the plant for this, um, it's easy for, you know, consumers and someone who's sort of just getting involved with the idea of using plants as medicines to think of them almost like pills, like this is a pill for a headache, this is a pill for stomach ache and not seeing the holistic dimensions. Mm-hmm. So that's what I really try to instill in my students, um, along with the fact that, um, you, you know, there's a, a a quote that I share, and I, I, I've been told that this is accurate and it makes perfect sense that it is, that the herbalist Rosemary Gladstar, who was a big inspiration to many herbalists mm-hmm. in this country, uh, once said that the only thing herbalists agree on is not to use aluminum cookware. Mm-hmm. And and that that idea is that, you know, it's very much a relationship between you and the plant. Mm-hmm. So, and then when I say that, I'm not necessarily only referring to what some people do, which is, uh, you know, a, a whole mystical aspect of, of sitting with a plant or meditating on a plant. But I think where, where that that link really gets anchored in and becomes tangible is when you yourself are facing a health crisis and you use a plant and you're healed. And that bond then is very, very strong. So that's what I'm encouraging my students to do. Let's not have this be like this theoretical abstract thing that, oh, this herb does that, this herb is for this. What is your experience of being healed by that plant? Right, um, and then that's something that no one can take away from you. That is beautiful. Thank you. Um, so, Patricia, one of the other components of one of the other hats that you wear is uh, you are a traveler, and you also uh, someone who loves exploring plants all over the world. And one of those uh, places uh, is Crete and Greece. And I know that you have Mm -hmm. a company that's called Wild Crete Travel. And uh, you specialize in custom travel experiences. So there are a couple of questions there. First of all, how did this happen? I am absolutely fascinated uh, just by the fact that you're doing this. And I also want uh, to ask you about you know, as a traveler, 
Uh, what are some of the things that you find important to support your health and well-being during these situations? How do you stay he healthy? How do you stay fit during the explorations? And what are some of the things that you can recommend to our listeners? So mm, let's start okay. where you where you started with the company, and then we'll come back to the tips. Okay. Well, I'm, 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 my heritage is Greek, for one thing. So mm -hmm. my grandfather emigrated from Greece uh, in the early 1900s to a town in Illinois where I was born, um, along with eventually three of his brothers and two of his sisters. So mm -hmm. the, the clan the clan came, <laughs> you know, okay. the whole clan of the family came. So um, I had that, you know, ancestral um connection with Greece definitely my whole life, though I had never been there. And I didn't go there until uh, the, 19th, the late 1990s. I went for the first time to Greece okay. and visited uh, the island of Milos, where my family is from. Um, and my partner uh, is a clinical anthropologist. Okay. And she has done um, her, her studies um, for her dissertation were on... Um, the role of women's friendships in a traditional Greek village. Mm -hmm. So in the 70s, she had lived in the mountains of Crete and um, studied this topic, which at the time was very groundbreaking. Mm -hmm. because Male anthropologists didn't think women's friendships had any role in anything, but we won't go down that road. Okay. Um, <laughs> so when she and I met, we, we realized we both had this connection for Greece and um, she still went back to visit every year, so I went with her um, and uh, fell in love with Crete, which is a very unique place because it, it is almost like a small continent. Okay. It has lots of different bioregions. Um, and she was doing um, taking students over there to study archaeology and anthropology topics. So I said, well, why don't we do plan a trip that's about herbs? Because mm -hmm. that's what I know. And I could, and in the wild there, there, I mean, we use the term wild very differently in a country like that, uh, where people have been basically manipulating the landscape mm -hmm. in, in really dramatic ways for thousands and thousands of years. Um, so there's very few wild places on Crete, but there is definitely an intact web of plant life that mostly exists in olive growth because that's the main thing that people are using the, the land for. Mm -hmm. um, so I put together a, an idea for a trip, and I also am a passionate uh, cook. And okay. my my father and my grandfather were both chefs, and so I grew up in a family where cooking and things like that were, you know, a, a big pastime. Mm -hmm. So I also was, and I wanted to learn more about uh, the cooking of Crete. It has a very unique cuisine, um, partly influenced by Turkish um, occupiers and by Italian, uh, Venetian occupiers. Mm -hmm. So there's these threads that weave through it. And most of the people that I met on Crete really made no distinction between, er, between foods and medicine. Mm -hmm. So, when someone was sick, there's a certain kind of soup you make, you know, all of that kind of thing. Uh, when babies are born, they're washed in chamomile tea. Mm -hmm. um, so I was intrigued by that because, you know, we have a big separation here in the United States between food and medicine. So 
partly what I was trying to do is learn about it myself, meet people who could talk to my students. Mm-hmm. So since since um, about 2000, almost every year we have organized uh, a tour, an eight-day tour, to take people to Greece and and to Crete. I mean, particularly. Mm-hmm. But one of the one of the kind of like amazing life synchronicities that happened is that um, my cousins who live in Greece were really encouraging me to apply for dual citizenship. Mm-hmm. So they got some of the paperwork that I needed about my grandfather so that I could do the application. And when they did that, we all discovered, which they didn't really realize either, either that my great grandmother was born on Crete. Oh, wow. And that, and that her family had moved when she was uh, a young girl to the island of Milos, mm-hmm. where my grandfather was born. So that really was just kind of an amazing thing for me, that a place that I had grown to love, I actually had, you know, ancestral roots there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's what we do now. We just I actually just got back about two and a half weeks ago um, from being there for about two months mm-hmm. and doing an eight-day tour and then, you know, continuing to learn from people that I know there um, about the herbs and food. Um, so that's the story of how Wild Creek Travel was born. That just as for your other quest, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, life is stranger, Lana, than we could ever imagine. I know. You know, I know. you just the paths we take. It's um, I continue to marvel at it, and I, I think, you know, in my advanced age here, what I would say is that, um, you know, just I always wanted to 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 never have any regrets that I didn't try something. Mm -hmm. And if someone asked me what was my, you know, accumulated wisdom, it was that that's definitely something I still stand by. You know, if you have an opportunity, follow it and see where it leads because you, you might not ever even imagine what was possible. That is wonderful. As for health tips when traveling, um, I do take a fair amount of herbal things with me. Um, And one of the ways that I choose what to take, it does have to do with like what my personal constitution. So what I'm vulnerable to. So what I sometimes suggest to people is if they're trying to figure that out for themselves is um, to think about, well, we sometimes say that, you know, stress is always going to impact the weakest body system. Mm-hmm. So wherever you have your weakness, whether it's your respiratory system, your digestive system, or things showing up on your skin like rashes, that that's the place that becomes destabilized when you're under stress. Mm-hmm. And even though travel is something that I really, really love to do, it's stressful. You know, right. you're sleeping in strange places, you're eating food that you don't normally eat, you're drinking strange water sometimes mm-hmm. um you know it's every day is kind of a an adventure and it takes a lot of energy so i think about you know for me it's respiratory system things i'm okay. very uh, prone to get um uh, colds and coughs and things like that so i i always travel with a formula that's from chinese medicine called jade screen okay. and it's um something to strengthen your surface immune system so that uh, pathogens that might be new to your body that would be challenging can be dealt with very quickly and effectively. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I take when I'm traveling, especially on planes and 
anytime I start to notice that I'm, I'm constitutionally feeling a little run down. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's very personal for me. Um, I always saw travel with and suggest that people take um, some essential oils with them. Okay. So I, I think lavender and tea tree are two of the most versatile mm-hmm. plant preparations we have because you can, you can use them to soothe irritated skin, a lavender in particular. Um, and it's very calming. Um, sometimes I've stayed places where there's a funny smell in the room mm-hmm. and I can just get a hot cup of water and put, five or six drops of lavender in it and it's like a primitive diffuser yeah um, um i sometimes when i'm on a plane and i feel like i notice someone behind me is coughing or something i might um take some tissues and put a bunch of essential oil on them and then tuck them in that air thing that's above my seat you know how every uh-huh. seat has its own little air vent yeah and then let that blow on me i love so that it's dispersing the essential oil. Mm-hmm. Um, and then tea tree is so good for infections and wounds. Um, I think it's kind of an insect repellent too. I find that um, if I'm someplace where there's a lot of uh, mosquitoes or even flies, mm-hmm. that I, 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 I'm less bothered by them with a little tea tree. I'm less bothered by everybody, actually, mm-hmm. <laughs> because tea tree is not the most pleasant smell. Um right. So those are a couple things. I think sleep remedies are critical when you're okay. traveling just because of, you know, the your subconscious is kind of on high alert. Right. Um, I, I really like um, passion flower as a sleep herb. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so I often take that in tincture form, just like in a little two-ounce bottle. Okay. Um, another herb that, that I find really helpful for sleep in general, especially situational insomnia, mm-hmm. not somebody necessarily who has chronic insomnia is um, reishi mushroom. Interesting. Um, Because I learned some years ago uh, in my studies that it's an herb that calms the spirit. So Mm -hmm. they call that the the shen in Chinese medicine. So um, it has an immediate effect. And so one of the things that I I think that happens when you're traveling and you're sleeping in a lot of different places is that some aspect of your spirit becomes a little agitated because uh, it's like hypervigilant, mm-hmm. uh, how I would describe it. And that I think that the, the Shen calming, spirit calming properties of Rishi uh, help, help uh, reassure that part of you so that you can actually let go and rest deeply. So I've had really good results with it. I love this idea. Um, at, uh, I just came back from an herbal conference and there were a variety of different, uh, reishi mushroom, um, uh, blends, I guess, for, uh, tea making. And so do you usually bring with you a tincture of reishi or like how, how do you typically recommend taking it when someone is traveling? I do usually use it as a tincture okay. only because I want it to act quickly, quickly. Um, okay. I, you know I mean really ideally capsules would be much easier because you don't have to worry about like did I forget and leave it in my bag and that's going to mm-hmm. be taken away from me in security mm-hmm. um, which you know can happen and that's a real drag um, but I think capsules work as well um, I usually suggest that people if they do use capsules and they're wanting the effects to be fast to seal the effects to drink hot water or some tea afterwards mm-hmm. to sort of get the breakdown of that capsule 
quicker. And it's always going to be slower if you've just eaten a big meal or something. So, um, you know, keeping that in mind. One of the funnest uh, products that I've had in a long time, uh, you're probably familiar with it, is Rishi Roast. Um, they make oh, an, yeah. they make an elixir, and so it's Rishi mushroom mm. roasted a Rishi mushroom that they add spices like cinnamon. I don't remember if cardamom is there, but what you do end up um, putting it in is a warm cup of milk, a warm cup of uh, ah. almond milk, and oh my god, it is so delicious. I just absolutely love it. So, Wow, that's brilliant. Yeah, I have gotten reishi roast in the past, and I really, really like it. And it's one of those things I'm glad you're reminding me because it is um, – reishi itself, you know, is not that great tasting, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's brilliant. I mean, I think that's the art of herbalism and what's so exciting about what's happening with um, herb products now is that you have people coming up with these brilliant combinations – to make people want to take herbs that are right. good for them. Right. Because people learn how to use different spices and how to just combine it very, very wisely. So, yes, there is definitely an art there. Science, but also definitely an art. So we talked a little bit about uh, travel tips. I wanted to ask you if there are any resources related to travel or related to anything else that we have been discussing. Perhaps maybe some resources on um, using the plants, the native plants or regional plants that you could recommend uh, our audience to explore a little bit further. It might be websites, it might be books, it might be, you know, teachers that you would recommend learning more from, anything that comes to your mind. Sure. Well, we're we're very fortunate. Of course, I, I want to maybe just make sure everyone understands where, the, where I am. Sure. So, um, botanically. So, we sometimes make this, uh, you know, reference the Southern Appalachians. And that's a very um, particular botanical region. So it's roughly, it's an area of of North America that wasn't affected by glaciers. So the glaciers came down from the North Pole and they didn't come all the way across the continent and they stopped um, roughly around the southwest corner of Virginia, you know, what we now call Virginia, around the New River Valley, Mm-hmm. Western North Carolina, Eastern Tennessee, and parts of North Georgia, and a little bit of Northern Alabama. So, what botanists say is that the plants that are found in that in that particular region are unique in that, that there's three distinct plant populations. Mm-hmm. There's plants that are usually found from approximately where I'm sitting right now in North Georgia, north all the way up into Nova Scotia and Canada. Then there's a separate plant population that is found from Virginia area I described down through Central America mm-hmm. and into South America. So they need a slightly warmer climate. And then there are endemic plants that are only found in this region. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why this is uh, sometimes referred to as the apothecary of North America mm. because, because it's, it's got this concentration. It doesn't mean that you don't find these plants anywhere else, but the number of these plants that are found in the landscape in the wild are more concentrated. They're all squished together. Very um, interesting. So, 
that was part of what drew me to this part of the country. Um, and it also inspires my school, as we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that was the inspiration for the book that I published in 2006, which mm-hmm. is uh, Medicinal Plants of the Southern Appalachian. Yes. So um, although we have a lot of things growing in this region, like mullein and nettles and uh, plantain, uh, St. John's wort, most of those are things that were introduced that are now common in the wild, but they aren't what what you would really call a true native. Like if you came here 300 years ago, would you have found those plants? No. Mm-hmm. They're part of like the migration of Europe. I mean, Europeans into North America brought mm-hmm. many of those. Mm-hmm. So in my book, I just talk about 45 plants that are truly native to this region. Okay. Um, and so that was my inspiration for that. Um there are, um, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head about a website that would be a good reference for this area. And to be honest, Alana, I'm coming up blank at this moment. Okay. Um, okay. Um, book-wise, uh, there's a wonderful book, uh, and this is not about the medicinal uses as much as just introducing people to the plants, mm-hmm. um, that's uh, Plant Communities of the Southern Appalachians that's written by a man named Tim Spira, okay. who was a former uh, botany professor at the University, Clemson University in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And one thing that he did that was really um, uh, unique is most plant books are organized around, well, if it's, if it's more for the general public, it might be organized around flower colors. So you have a whole section of yellows and blues mm-hmm. and things. And then others are according to their, their, their family, what mm-hmm. plant family they belong to. And what uh, Tim Spira did is wrote it about the ecology of a, of a particular bioregion. So what would you find growing along creeks that were north-facing? Uh-huh. slopes. Uh, what would you find above 2,000 feet? So he organized it the way plants really grow, which is in communities, not according to their color. How interesting. <laughs> so, okay. Um, it, was, it was a very clever take on it. Mm-hmm. Um, another book that I like a lot that I, I do refer to um, is um, oh... I I think it's called the Essential Herbal Reference Book. And it's, um, again, I'm sorry, I don't have this right in front of me. Um, It's a book that was written by two anthropologists who went to Alabama, um, I think it was in the 60s, and they uh, interviewed and studied a man named Tommy Bass. And Tommy Bass was a very um, folk herbalist. He was one of Phyllis Delight's teachers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, Ur- the Alabama herbalist Phyllis Delight. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, he was one of her teachers. So he worked in very much a folk tradition, but only using plants that he could harvest around his home in Alabama. Mm-hmm. And they documented his use of all of the plants. So if someone was interested in this, and I apologize that, that I don't have the title, I think it's called something like the Herbal Reference Book. Okay. Um, but if if you Googled Tommy Bass and his name is spelled Tommy I E, um, you would probably come up with you know get in the neighborhood of the book. Okay. Um, there's a two volume set. One is about the plants he used, and the other one is about how he used them. Okay. And um, it's fascinating reading because not only do they include in there how he used the plant, but then for each plant they also say 
So that's how Tommy used it, although traditionally we've seen people use it in these other ways. Mm-hmm. So it's a very broad overview of uh, plants, regional plant use that's still pertinent today. I'll definitely take a look, and I hope I will be able to find it, and I'll include it in the show notes. Um, Great. Thank so, you. So thank you for that. Um, so, Patricia, as our time is coming to an end, I have a, two more questions for you. So one of them, is there something that we have not discussed today, but that you would like to leave this audience with? So that's one. And then the other one, how can someone learn more about you and from you? Okay. Um, so... I'm just trying to think if there's anything I would like to add. You've asked me such wonderful questions. Uh, I feel like any one of them we could have talked for a long time about. Um, Well, I do think that any of your listeners, I would really um, encourage them to, um, to, to, to grasp the understanding that, that herbs are um, something that in in many cases need to be used long-term in order to fill their effects. So we make a distinction in herbalism between herbs that, that primarily address acute systems, symptoms, and then herbs that are primarily uh, what we would call tonics. That mm-hmm. The longer you use them, the more they, um, they help you. And one thing I see that people often do when they're first starting to experiment with herbs is they don't make that distinction and they use tonic herbs for just a little while, maybe a week or so, mm-hmm. and then discard it because they think it didn't help them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that learning a little bit about herbs and thinking about, is this an herb that has a tonic effect on the body? And if it does, then making a commitment to using it for three months or six months mm-hmm. to get its full effect. Uh, because I think that there are some herbs out there that uh, really can change the quality of someone's life and 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 bring them into a place of feeling a lot of vitality and, you know, able to live their life fully because they have the energy they need. Mm -hmm. But many of those are herbs that need to be used um, for a longer period of time. As as people who mostly were raised in an allopathic health model where it was very symptom-oriented, I think it's um, it's a, a way that our minds have to change to think about oh, this is something that's going to take a while for me to feel the full Mm -hmm. benefits of, Mm -hmm. as opposed to taking a pill and feeling better immediately. I love that reminder. Thank you. Sure. And as for um, any of your listeners who are listening who would like to know a little bit about my school or my book, my website is wildhealingherbs.com. So a pretty simple one to remember. Um, and I will definitely include it in the show notes. And you also, you are on social media, am I correct? Yes, under okay. my name and under my school name. My school name is Botanologos School of Herbal Studies. Okay. And that's kind of a mouthful, but Botanologos is the word in Greek that means herbalist. Awesome. So that's what I drew that from. I also will put in a plug here for any of your listeners who are uh, interested in attending a really fantastic event that we have the American Herbalist Guild in Symp- Symposium, which mm-hmm. is our annual educational event, is going to be uh, near my home here in Georgia this year. Yes. So we're going to have four days of incredible teachers coming from all over the country, some from different parts of the world, um, in a beautiful park. 
uh, with lots of plants around. So, I, I really um, can't wait. I'm so excited about coming to Georgia this year. So yes, thank you. Definitely, definitely thank you for bringing this up. Patricia, I am so grateful for your wisdom, for your advice, for your suggestions. Thank you so much for, for joining me today. Thank you. It was my honor, Alana, and I, I really admire the work you're doing with these podcasts. I think it's important information, and I'm going to put a link on my website so that all of the people who come to my site learn more about your work, too. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you again for joining us today. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Patricia Curitzi Howell. I put together a quick list of Patricia's three must-have natural allies for a healthy and happy trip. You can find it along with all the links in the show notes at wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash 42. When you have a moment, I'd greatly appreciate it if you could share some love by leaving a rating or review about the show wherever you download your podcast. This is the best way to help others to learn about the Wellness Insider Network. It also helps to bring wonderful guests like Patricia to join us here. This episode is proudly brought to you by the American Herbalist Guild. This year's symposium is October 25th through 29th at Unicoi State Park and Lodge in Helen in Northeast Georgia. The theme for the 2018 symposium is bioregional herbalism. And this year's keynote presenter is a fourth-generation Alabama herbalist and author of the newly released book, Southern Folk Medicine, Phyllis Delight. I hope to see you there in Georgia in October. Thanks again for being here. I appreciate you. Be smart, be healthy, be you.